Well, good morning, Todd. Good morning, Laura. What have you been up to? Well, mostly just thinking about kind of the fact that we live across the United States from each other. And it I makes know. me really sad. So I love it when we do these because then I get to see your face and we get to hang out. Woohoo! So, yeah, I mean, other than that, I, uh, I got to this past, or I guess that was yesterday, I did my first dance lesson. So, How did you know, that go? I'm on my, oh, well, it went, um, I was a little bit hungover. So there's that. The guy, <laughs> Scott, my, uh, not to be confused with our guest for today, but Scott, my teacher is a fantastic guy, but I had to tell him, I had to warn him beforehand. I was like, listen, I'm not normally this bad and I probably don't smell great. So just let's do this but he was so go with the flow we did some salsa we did some you know all the different kinds of cha-cha and he it up quickly yeah yeah i mean i had a little bit of a hangover (laughs) yeah i mean considering yeah i think you know i i I got into the groove it was a lot of just trying to get movement and hearing the songs that i like and i really want to do like a halsey song so he was super into that and but, you know, we're not allowed to technically do anything like choreography or any of that for another three or four weeks. So it was... Listeners, we um, Laura is participating in uh, Dancing with the Stars in Charleston. There is a local version of this, and uh, they're gonna, they're pretty much kicking their asses into shape. They, I hope they do, because, I mean, that's... that's I really want to be, like, beat up in this. Like, I want to get, like, where people are throwing sandwiches at me. Like, eat a sandwich... Uh, you look too skinny. Like uh, that is my main goal with this. But <laughs> the secondary goal is to raise money for the American Lung Association. So that's my biggest focus right now is getting people to buy tickets, to donate. If anybody wants to, you can go to the American Lung Association page and and vote for me by um, giving a, a small donation. Um, the winners are not decided by talent. And that is actually a very um, comforting thing for me. That it's... <laughs> It's all for <laughs> that charity, they will not guys. be judging it. It, it. Apparently, if there's a tie, then they start judging your technique. But we don't. We don't. Hopefully, we won't have to worry about that. Well, um, how did you? How did you enjoy this interview with Scott? At per usual, thought it was extremely educational. I learned a lot as far as you know all the other um, conditions I probably have now um, that I was not aware of. <laughs> just kidding that's blown away by his social media following i mean that's incredible I mean, it's nuts and then i guess to me it's just it's always fascinating that people that are operating at such a high level you know are still struggle with things like imposter syndrome like that that is still a thing so you know i think that it was i think a lot of people are going to really enjoy not only his humor and his his wit but like kind of the things that he's had to deal with uh, going into all of this. So I think it was a really good, a really good interview. Shall I tell our uh, listeners about him a little bit? Yeah, that would probably help. Okay. So Scott Evan Davis is a New York City-based composer and lyricist. After working as an actor around the country, he began composing in 2010 and since then has gained widespread recognition in the world's musical theater and cabaret. Scott has performed concerts and song cycles of his music at New York City venues such as Birdland, Duplex, Don't Tell Mamas, as well as in Washington, D.C. at the Kennedy Center and in Los Angeles. He has performed concerts internationally in London, Dublin, and Australia. Currently, Scott is developing his first full-length musical called Indigo with Sing Out Louise Productions. The show is about a non-verbal girl with autism who teaches everyone around her how to truly communicate. 
I think this is going to be such an amazing, amazing musical. Um, and also, if you want to check him out on TikTok, he has about 500,000 followers as Scott Evan Davis as the Prince of Snarkness. So, uh, I mean, he's just great. Yeah, without further ado, we introduce Scott. Good morning. Welcome, Scott. Hi, Scott. Hello. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing really, really great. It's a nice, easy day. How are you? Good. We just wanted to thank you so much for um, being not only a guest, but our tech support today. <laughs> we had some issues and Scott helped us, which is, you know, always good to have somebody who knows what they're doing on here. Especially when you spend 30 hours of your week on Zoom. You get really used I mean, to it. <laughs> yeah, I would think that we would be closer to that level of understanding. But, you know, this is a growing process. We're learning. Don't we're worry. So... In about a year or two, we're all just hologram into each other's living room. We won't need to do anything. Any of this. This is all, you know, very basic compared to how it's going to work at some point, hopefully. But we are so thrilled to have you on. I know that you're a friend of, of Todd's. Tell me a little bit, like, or tell all of us a little bit of how you guys how you guys met and and what your kind of your journey was in composing and writing. You know, I was thinking about that before um, coming on and Todd, I can't remember exactly how we met or when we met. It was probably at some, some, some piano bar. I think it was the duplex. It was probably the duplex. Yeah. Hey, Jess Jack. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was it. It It must've been, it was in New York. Yeah. Old New York uh, uh, stomping grounds. I used to go out a lot. Really? I'm too old. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, then there was the pandemic. So like, what are you going to... Well, I'm talking about, I used to go out in my, you know, mid-20s. I'm 44 now. So I think the last time I've been out, out, you know, it's been a long time. I'm, I'm a homebody. I like to stay home. <laughs> so the pandemic was good for you then? <laughs> it was a dream come true <laughs> in every way. Yeah, I can imagine. I have a friend who's an um, introvert and we're all like crying at our offices, just like, what are we going to do? And she's like, I'm living my best life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is real quick and this is just a silly little thing. But years ago when I was in, I, again, my early 20s, I was like, oh, I really want to do teach voice lessons. I wasn't even teaching voice lessons, but I knew that I wanted to at some point. And I said, and Skype had just been invented. This is true. Skype had just come out. And I bought the website domain name scoaching.com because I said my dream would be just to not have to just to sit in front of my computer and teach everybody thought I was nuts flash forward to 2020 this is where I spend my time teaching virtually so jokes on everybody else jokes on everybody else you actually invented all of this I think you manifested it I manifested it exactly exactly well lovely to hear that you'll have no idea how you know each other so going back from that (laughs) yeah tell us a little bit about your background like well have you always been in the arts when did you start you know doing what you're doing now how you know just the whole shebang i was a really unique little child and before i ever found theater i was training to be a professional bowler when i was 12. this is true i used to go on saturdays to atlantic city (laughs) And, and train with this professional bowler because bowling used to be on on Saturdays. And You're I serious. Four, I'm serious. serious. I was on four. This isn't sarcasm. <laughs> I was on four different leagues. My grandfather was a great bowler and it was just something that I loved. And then I wanted to be a cartoonist and I started drawing. I was, it was very good. I liked doing that a lot. And then I found theater and I sort of did my first show and I really just wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be on Broadway. And I was an actor up until I was 30. You know, all my training was 
acting and musical theater in school. I taught myself to play the piano when I was 11. I never really had a piano lesson, but I just got obsessed with learning how to play for whatever reason. And so I always played throughout my whole life, but like writing or being a composer was never something that I wanted until much, much later. So I was 30 and then everything sort of changed. I've done everything. I've been a mutual fund investment specialist, a waiter, everything, you name it, I've been. (laughs) Renaissance man. I kind of like to think of myself as that person. Some people might see it as not focused, but I like to consider it, you know, that I can do multiple things. So if you need me, just slide me right in there. Right. You call it Renaissance man. I call it ADHD. ADHD, yes. (laughs) We heard in one of your interviews, Scott, that you you literally started composing after you had a dream. Can you, like, elaborate on that? Of course. In a concise way, I went to two different schools. I went to Emerson College in Boston because I was sort of paying for everything on my own and and I couldn't really afford that particular school at Emerson. And I ended up coming back to New York and sort of waiting tables and figuring it out. And then I went to AMDA, the American Musical Dramatic Academy. And I literally was working at the Olive Garden in Times Square full-time and trying to pay my own way at 18. And I was just working all through the night and I was trying to go to this conservatory, which was literally nine to five every day. You went there. You know, I went there too. Are you serious? That's how we met. No, that's maybe how we met. (laughs) We figured it out. (laughs) We went to school. No, I didn't know you went to You were my teacher? Um, that was you. When did y'all go? When was each one of you there? I went in 1847, and when Todd did you go? It was no, 18. I, went, yeah. <laughs> I think it was 1998, 1999 that I was there. Okay, I was there in uh, 2003. 2003. Oh, y'all just missed each other by five other. years. Well, then maybe you know who I'm talking about because years. this might be interesting for you. <laughs> so, Brian Ashinger, who was a teacher there, was my teacher. And he sort of took a special liking to me early on, and he thought I was really talented. And and I kind of, you feel that from a teacher. You feel like when you know that they're appreciating you. But I kept falling asleep. And one particular day I fell asleep, and he kind of came over to me afterwards, and he says, what are you doing? I'd love to take you to lunch. And we went to a diner right around the corner, and we talked. And I basically like unloaded everything that was, I mean, I'm not going to go into it here, but I was going through a lot of things. And most of them were financial and and working a lot. And I just sort of unloaded. And he then told me that something that, because I kind of was very open and he appreciated that and he said well something that nobody knows about me at this school and I would love for you to not you know tell anyone is that I have cancer and I may only have a year to live or or two years to live and I said okay Um, so now we've sort of had this bond and we started building a friendship and that eventually one of his solutions was so that I didn't have to work so much he lived out in New Jersey and he had this big house and he was sick a lot and so it was just one of the, God, it was a different time, but it was just one of those Tuesdays with Maury's thing where he invited me to come live there. In, in payment or in a balance, he would sort of coach me on acting and, and acting through a song. And so I would sit in the hospital with him during chemo and he would like work on my song. And it was that kind of a relationship. And it lasted for about 10 months. And then I was in a relationship with someone in Boston still from when I was going to school in Boston. And I was really sort of obsessed with that. That was all that mattered to me. Love was so crucial and everything else was sidelined. I was also 19 years old, isolated in this house in a sense and sort of feeling, I just didn't know what, you know. So I, I basically 
told him that I was going back to Boston. And it sort of broke his heart. We never spoke again. And then two years later, I was living in Boston. I was a mutual fund investment specialist. I was not doing theater. And I wrote him a letter to apologize, because I was also single, because the relationship had ended. And um, he never got it because he had passed away. So that's sort of the backstory about my unresolved feeling, because I knew that he died angry or upset with sort of how I handled everything. Years later, I was an actor. I was doing an off-Broadway play called Joy, directed by Ben Rimmelauer. I think Ben Curtis oh my was God. in January yeah. Boy. And I was in another sort of very tumultuous place in my life. And I was not happy at all, which was ironic since the show was called Joy, but I had none. And I had a dream. And in the dream, Brian was sitting on a park bench and he looked completely healthy and happy. And I felt like he was going to forgive me. And he had his arms outstretched. And he had his, he had his hair, because he had lost his hair. And he hugged me. And as he was hugging me, he started to hum. And he kept repeating those two bars like over and over. And then in the dream, um, he didn't like let the hug go. And I started to not being able to breathe. And it became sort of a dark experience. And then I thought he was trying to kill me. It was a very strange dream. And I woke up the next day. I couldn't get the melody out of my head. And again, I, I, I wasn't writing anything. I, I played, but all day long I was thinking about it. When I got home from work, I sat at the piano, played it out, and that became my first song, which became the title of my first album, which I dedicated to him. And I've been a composer ever since. I just that got was, goosebumps. But That's I know. The truth. I, so I was listening to an interview you did yesterday about that, and I was walking my dog and I literally just like stopped and was like what are the odds because it's also called cautiously optimistic which I feel like is very appropriate for like you know you're going into something you've never done before but you feel like you were kind of given permission to do it I feel like we have moments in our lives where if you're sort of I don't know if you're aware of certain consciousness I think personally, that's how I feel, I think that you can start to draw lines about things and why things actually happen. And I do believe that once he died, he sort of was able to gear me towards what my ultimate purpose was, because in life, I think he was trying to help me with my purpose, but it wasn't what my authentic purpose really was, but who could know? And I think yeah. he had a greater understanding when he died, and, and that was his last gift to me. That's beautiful. I think. Yeah, I mean, that that's, you know, I think that there's lots of reasons that people go into things, but that is, you know, a very special story, I, yeah. I feel like, at least. It's incredible. Yeah, I, um, I really appreciated sort of all of that. And I don't think I expected when it started to happen that that's what I was going to do. But I knew, the second I started writing songs, I sort of knew that's where my happy place was. Awesome. Well, so as, as you were answering that question and we heard these sirens going on in the background, I'm sure everybody's kind of aware that you live in New York City. I do. I live in Harlem, New York City. Yeah. How do you like it there? It's good. I've actually been in this building for 13 years. You haven't um, left Different once, apartments. Actually. And I've never left. I don't know what the yeah. outside looks like. I think it's Harlem. <laughs> could, <laughs> could be Utah for all of They all redistricted. It's all different um, now. Exactly. It's high rises and... No, I, I, I really do enjoy it. I, I, I love this apartment and I, and I love the building I live in, but I haven't really been able to leave New York. And you... Oh, uh, really? Uh, yeah. No, I've never wanted to. I, I've never 
brought, you know, it's come up a few times in my life, but I have to be here. And I'm glad because this is where Broadway is. I need exactly. to be here. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it makes the most sense, actually. Yeah. And I know that you work a lot from home and virtually with some of your students and stuff like that. So the pandemic, uh, you were forced to stay at home. How did it affect your career and your life as a whole, professionally and personally? I feel like I'm going to get hate for this. And I don't mean it in any neg- in, in any way towards anybody else because I know how hard this has been, especially for people in the arts industry. I, 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 I have never been happier when the pandemic hit. I mean, other than, you know, I've been sick and, you know, that that sort of fear, um, which is no fun and, and, yeah. and a million other things. But just the idea of working virtually. So when the pandemic hit, I had sort of inside information about how intense it was going to get only because you know, my husband was in meetings for, you know, his business and, and, and was coming home with information that like, I don't think that I would have had. And it really was something where I sort of knew, okay, Thursday, March, 2020, like this is the last time I'm going to oh, be yeah. going to get pizza for a while. Like I just, and I remember sitting down and getting a slice of pizza. I had gotten a call from him and he was like, go to the grocery store, buy a ton of food, go home. And I said, oh, you know, I just finished teaching. I used to go to people's apartments and teach and go to rehearsals and things. And like, no more um, of that. I did. I, did. So I sat at my favorite pizza place and I just looked around and I went home and that was it. But I sort of, I get obsessive about certain things. And when this started to happen, instead of not working, I took all of my students that I currently had and pretty obsessively for the first month taught myself how to video edit. I taught myself the programs I would need. How do I create a virtual studio that was completely in real time? That I, It took a while, but I never, I, so I just scheduled all my students for the following week virtually. And I've never really stopped, you know? And then, of course, the social media side of it has changed my whole life. And that happened sort of because of the pandemic and wanting to have more of a digital presence, I guess, that I didn't have. So I don't know. I think I'm one of those people that sort of thrived through it, which, you know, I'm grateful for it. Yeah, I don't think you have to be feel guilty that you, you know, had a had some positive things. I mean, that's kind of the whole premise of this show is that I'm gay and Jewish. I'm feeling guilty as a personality trait. Oh, yeah. Well, then, you know, we can't help that. But, you know, I think in general, it, it is nice to hear that things came out of this that were positive. I think we can all kind of think of things that became a little bit better as a result of it. We can't have Zoom meetings. We don't have to all sit in a conference room and brave traffic for nonsense. And um, so I think it kind of got people's priorities in order. But I think this is the perfect time to discuss why you say that your career took off so much during that time, because you became basically a TikTok celebrity, kind of like... (laughs) I, I mean, I wouldn't say kind of like you are a TikTok are celebrity, a t- and then and I've only seen. I don't. I'm still le- learning how to use TikTok, so I've seen them on Instagram. But could you tell all of our listeners kind of like what you how that process came about? For those of our listeners who don't who who need to go check him out, you have over f- almost five hundred thousand followers combined with TikTok and Instagram, right? And Facebook. No, I have. Um, 500,000. <laughs> I haven't counted, but let me tell you exactly. Yeah, <laughs> let me um, check the data. Who's counting? It's four. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's about 500,000 on TikTok and about 200,000 on Instagram. Oh, yes. Yes. Divulge, sir. Kind of and I was, I was watching uh, Drag Race on Friday night, and right when the winners were going to be, you know, uh, you know, at the end of the challenge, I started getting tagged, like, a lot on TikTok, which 
happens. And it was just Selena Gomez used your sound. Selena Gomez used your sound. Selena Gomez, just everybody was tagging. I was like, what are you talking about? I said, pause this, pause this. And like 20 minutes before that, like Selena Gomez, who has 34 million followers, she had used and lip synced to one of my sounds and it tagged me in it and stuff. And that was really kind of wild because I've had celebrities, you know, use my sound, Dorinda from Housewives, things like that, Alyssa Milano, but she was like the biggest one. And I, I was like, oh my gosh. So that was brought oh, me a lot of attention. Yeah, yeah. you had like, when um, I went to check it, it was like 15,000 likes. And I'm sure that that is like times a thousand now. So, I mean, I mean, uh, Laura texted me. She was like, you do realize that this just happened today. <laughs> like I was so excited for you that I couldn't handle it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really funny. Oh, you mean on Instagram? Yeah, it was viewed. Yes. Uh, but anyway, I was deep into when the pandemic hit, I was creating a virtual studio, really depressed. I mean, I say I was I was thriving, but I have a musical that I've written called Indigo, which had just had its like fourth pre-Broadway workshop. And the next step was doing a show at a theater and literally the pandemic hit. And I was pretty convinced, as we all probably were, that all of our prospects that we currently had were gone. And it was a rebirth in some way. And it was a very, you know, uh, I'm in therapy because of it. But it was a very sort of grieving process for me because I wasn't convinced it was ever going to really happen. We'll talk more about that later. Yes. I was home. I was sort of focused on teaching. And I said, well, what can I do to continue to make money and be successful? Because that was the biggest concern. I have a lot of negative attachments to finances. And, you know, I didn't want to be back in a place that, you know, it was irrational in a sense, but that's where it was. So I was lying in bed one night and, and my husband, who was, you know, on TikTok, I was not. I didn't, I'd never been on it. I didn't know what it was. And he was just like laughing. And I just kept getting fooled. I remember he was showing me and I remember being like, oh, hi, that guy has such a good voice. He was like, no, that's not his voice. He's lip syncing. Oh. And then it was like somebody else saying something funny. I was like, oh my God, that's so funny. It's like, no, they're, they're lips. Oh, oh, okay. And in my mind, I just said, how, what do you do? I don't get it. How are you doing it? Everyone's a video editor. I don't get it. Yeah. And so what I did was I said, okay, well, a lot of my younger students probably are on TikTok. So let me figure out TikTok to really push my music and to push my studio and, and my business in, in that way, singing and piano. And I, and I just didn't, that's not why I like TikTok. I started laughing and I said, I want to be funny. So I was like, I want to do lip syncs. I used to be an actor. I want to do it. And so I love the Golden Girls. And if you scroll back far enough on my TikTok, my first month or two of content was I was like doing scenes. I remember scenes that. Golden Girls <laughs> where I was like transitioning from each character. Yeah. And, and I loved it. But the thing was, I am one of those creatures of habit where I have to, I'm, I'm, I'm all or nothing. There's no happy medium with, with me. It's like, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And th that's why it's hard for me to start things because I know how exhaustive I'll make it. But I started doing it every day and I said, I can't possibly take two hours of my morning every morning to learn, film, do all these things. And so I said, there has to be an easier way to make people laugh. But I like making people laugh. I really yeah. did. I thought it was fun. Yeah. And so I started saying funny things. And then I realized how much I talk with my hands. And I said, this is ridiculous. I need a prop. So I went to my closet and I got all the, I had these coffee mugs, which I had never collected before. It was never something I thought of. But when you watch yourself do videos every day holding something, you're like, oh, 
no, it needs to match with what I'm wearing. I don't like the way that looks. Nope, I need to have a different cup every day. Nope, I, I'm going to get bored. <laughs> and that's like the obsessive thinking that where that whole thing started. And I sort of gradually launched into this B. Arthur delivery of sarcasm, which I respond to. And then organically, the eyebrow started to work and it just became a thing. And one day, I think I had like, I don't know, I went from no followers to a couple thousand on TikTok and someone was like, oh my God, you're the prince of snarkness. And I laughed for five minutes. I said, that's hysterical. <laughs> and I said, I'm stealing it. So I started hashtag, I, I created the hashtag prince of snarkness, which I was the only person to ever use it on TikTok. It has 50 million views now, 50 million wow. views as the hashtag on TikTok. And it just became a thing. And I sort of just was, just started doing it every day. But the funny part is, the, the humor of it all really because I started going live a lot and talking and getting people to just know who I am a little bit and I had a lot to say and I think it became one of those things where it organically filtered into my music and I started showing people my music because for a long time before that everybody on social media knew I was a composer because there was a small group of people that followed me you know what I mean mm -hmm. they knew me and I went from like hardly any followers to a ton. And I just had to reintroduce myself as a human, I think, into a digital world. And that's sort of where I am. And we'll be right back after a few words from our sponsors. Eternus is all about you. Eternus Life Coaching is all about partnering with clients in a thought-provoking and creative process that inspires them to maximize their personal and professional potential. Eternus believes in making your dreams and goals a reality, and their coaches know just how to do that. Whether you're just starting out or looking to bolster your current transformation, they have you covered. Leveraged by the International Coaching Federation and founded by Chris Wingator, Eternus coaches develop and maintain an effective coaching plan with attainable results. Eternus offers flexible plans and rates to allow all people to benefit from this rewarding creative process. So don't hesitate. If you want to unlock your full potential, begin your journey with Eternus Coaching today. Visit www.eternuslife.com and let Eternus help you manage progress and maintain accountability in achieving your highest potential. Follow them on Instagram and Twitter at Eternus Life. We were talking about this yesterday. I mean, yes, that that is it is kind of a B Arthur type character that you're doing because you, Scott, are one of the nicest, sweetest, not snarky humans in the world. So it was just to see you do this. It's just so funny. It's so it's just I'm so glad you're you doing know, it. Have you all seen the Kermit the Frog, like where he's drinking tea and looking out of the window and he's just like, well, yes. you know, basically like. I don't like what that person's doing, but that's none of my business. And it right, kind of like right. reminds me of that, but in like a much more direct, like, you know, you get to gaze into Scott's eyes while he says, yeah. have you ever thought about people right. and right. hated them? <laughs> my whole thing is, I just think that as humans, we are all so remarkably alike that we always focus on the things that make us different. We always focus on our beliefs, our politics, our, which is very important and we have to have that discord. But sometimes it's, sometimes it's really healthy to look at another human and say, you know what I hate about humans? And it's things that we all do, it's, it's things that we all do. And I think it's, it's relatable because we all sort of have certain beefs with, with how crazy people are. 
Yeah. But us too. It, it, you know what I mean? So I think that's fun for me. And, and you know, I am snarky. I am sarcastic. I've always deflected with humor. Always. And I'm just not mean or cruel. And You would never actually drop person. a toaster into a bathtub. <laughs> I mean, I yeah. wouldn't. I, well, I wouldn't post about it. <laughs> I know. That would be very incriminating. But, you know, we've all right. thought about it. <laughs> right. And I think it's a role and it's, and it's, an, it's an outlet for me to, you know, to have different facets to my personality. You know, some people call That's that awesome. sociopathic. <laughs> I call it humor. <laughs> exactly. No. As long as you're not hurting anybody with it, then it, not yet. sociopathic yeah. uh, <laughs> well, stuff is totally fine. Scott, you have right. a show coming up called uh, Connections Unstable, and it's described as such on your page, quote, sitting at the piano with a host of talented singers, Scott will tell personal stories while incorporating new songs as well as old. This show explores the human condition, what drives us, and how we use communication in a new era. Who wrote that? Kind of what this whole podcast next page is about. Was this a product of COVID? How did you come about creating the show? So because you couldn't perform live for so long, when things started realizing that, you know, I could put a show together, I'd realized I used to do concerts of my music all the time. I did one at Kennedy Center and 54 Below and in London, Australia. And I really was doing the concert and show song cycle route a lot. And I sort of had been focusing on writing Indigo when I stopped doing that as much. So I thought over the summer would be a really fun thing for me because I have new songs that I've written and I have a new following. And I thought that oh, yeah. if I could incorporate, you know, every concert I've done was very much like, I wrote this song when, or please welcome Liz Calloway and she's gonna say, it, it was all very, you know, here's my music. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was sort of funny kind of as I was talking to the audience or whatever but it wasn't really the point of it and I thought that there's a way to combine the idea of deflecting with humor through how I am as a person and then you hear all of my music which is really heartfelt and like there's there's a lot of emotion to them and so I thought it would be fun to be snarky and funny as I'm talking about my own life but incorporating it with my music, which sort of becomes my own memory. So I work so much virtually that a lot of times my students will get assigned, you know, connection unstable on Zoom. And it's when oh. you can't connect or when, you know, you freeze or you can't do this. And every time I would start to have this like heart to heart or something, I, with this one student, it always said connection unstable. I said, that's ironic. I said, mm -hmm. I think, I think that you, I said, I think your computer has really like intimacy issues because every time we start talking about something, it's like, no, no, I'm too into no. So I thought it was a great title for a show because all the songs I've written are about the human condition and communication in some form. And just the whole act of writing is about communicating. And we live in a world where we have to figure out new ways to do it, so. Your songs are very heartfelt. With your new songs, have you brought the humor into the songs, like into the lyrics? Yeah, so it's funny you should say that because I just met with my director a couple of days ago right here and I have this song, we had a whole set list and I had a, a song I've written called Everyone Has a Vice, which I've written comedy songs, you know, most, like four or five out of dozens. But I had a funny one and it was it's supposed to be a quartet and I've only done it as a quartet. And, you know, I was singing through it and one person is, you know, they shop too much, one person has anonymous sex, one person does drugs, you know, the, everyone has a vice. And as long as we don't let it control us, whatever. And that's the point of the song. And so my director was like, I think you should start the show and you should play and sing that song by yourself. 
And I said, I'm not going to start a show being like, here's all the things that I, you know what I mean? They're not even my vices. I don't do those things. Um, well, not all of them. And, yeah. um, and he says, well, I think you should write a new set of lyrics about you and what you consider your vices to be and somehow relate it. And I said, I can't do that. Because by the way, I don't know if the two of you do this, but talk about imposter syndrome, which I know we'll talk about later. But the second there's something that someone says you're capable of, your instinct first is, nope, can't do it. You're wrong. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I'm going to kill myself. Nope. <laughs> and so I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I sat down and I wrote a new set of lyrics, which I loved. And, you know, it's about social media and needing validation and and just sort of the whole world we live in where we post everything for strangers to care. You know, so I was able to incorporate more of my own humor, I think, into into it. To answer your question. How, yeah, how do we how do we listen to that song? You watch my show on May twenty first at seven PM. Okay. I'm so live streaming gonna... it too. Yes. All right, oh, great. Well we'll put um we'll definitely put a link then to oh, that thanks. um so that everybody else can see it because I mean I'm Unfortunately, not in New York, and Todd's all the way in LA. So the opening line, though, is we all live behind a screen, all fighting to be seen. Um, every little detail we share, posting it so strangers will care. But the more you scroll, it takes a toll, and you start to feel like nobody's there. That I is the opening. Love oh. that. Yeah, and then it just goes on from there. It's so like uh, it's vaudeville. The song is like da 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 dum. And so what I really wanted to do was because my director also said there's all these silent moments. Like after the verse is over, it goes ba da da da. Nobody's there. Boom. And there's like a silentness. <laughs> silentness. I'm yeah. a lyricist. Yeah, no, no, it's silent <laughs> uh, beat. And I put in one-liners. So it's basically start to feel like nobody's there. Boom. Have you ever let yourself mind want, you know, and then I would go into a one-liner and then ba-da-da-da-da-da-da. So that's like the opening of the show, which I think kind of fits me perfectly. And then it goes into my other songs with other well, people no. singing them, you know. Yeah, and it sounds like you kind of incorporate that, like, you know, Prince of Snarkness yeah, yeah, in there. Yeah, so humor. it's like a mm -hmm. part of your... It's all about you know, deflecting your, with humor. Yeah. Yes. I think that that is very healthy. Maybe I'm not a therapist, so don't Mine do does. what I say. <laughs> I'm in therapy two hours a week. <laughs> oh, yeah, me too. And she oh, thinks yeah. I'm hilarious. And that's all I need, really, is well, my therapist. To it's tell funny, me though, because I, got really, I get bored with things easily. And when I started doing like the one-liner thing, I said, I need to do something else. So I started a series where I play my, like the sarcastic guy goes to therapy. And the therapist is equally as sarcastic. And there's a company, Just Salad, here in New York, their salad company. So they hired me, and I was doing like a video a month, basically eating their salad, but like doing these therapy scenes. And I, there was one where it was like, uh, that joke came up, which is so real, but it's like, the therapist was like, so I, I, I think that you um, deflect with humor, and we need to deal with that. And I think I said something like, thank you. He's like, no, that wasn't a compliment. He was like, oh, I only heard that you thought I was funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I heard a humor. I heard the word humor, and it worked for yeah. me. That's awesome. Well, so kind of getting back to, I guess, not so much your upcoming stuff, but what was, like, one artist that you were absolutely thrilled to get the chance to work with, and what would you say has been kind of your greatest accomplishment to date? I guess that's kind of a loaded question. You can no, it's not. No, it's not. Um, so it's it's a toss up, but I Was think it I'm gonna. That? It's Liz Calloway. Liz the brilliant Liz Calloway. Broadway. The brilliant Liz Calloway. I was putting my first album together, and I was really grateful because I had Faith Prince sing something, and Liz Calloway, and some other really great people. And I remember when when Liz was coming in to record the song, 
uh, she wanted to call me on the phone the night before to talk about the lyrics. And I remember it was like, you know, me, I just was starting and I was working with all these cool people and Liz Calloway was going to call me on the phone to talk about the lyrics. And she was so kind and so wonderful and made me think so much. No other singer has done that who I've recorded with that way. And then when she showed up at the studio, she did two takes. We used the first one, two. And she just wanted to do another one to have it. And then she ended up singing for me at 54 Below or something. But I think she was just really kind and generous yeah. and human. And I loved that about her. Do you find that that's kind of like a rare quality with people in the business? I will be honest. I am incredibly lucky. I have loved and developed friendships. I mean, some more than others with everyone I've worked with. And I don't know what that is, but I've only worked with singers who wanted to be there luckily. I mean, if someone doesn't like a song, they're not going to come in and do it. I haven't really had any situation with a singer or a performer or a big person in the business where I could leave it and say, "Ugh." I mean, not one that I'm going to talk about here. But <laughs> that came, I have had those, I have had those interactions, but it wasn't somebody I was working with. It was someone I met or would meet. No, it, everyone's been really kind. I've, everyone's human. They just want to do the best they can do. Well, I'm everyone's, glad. Everyone's I'm, a person. Exactly. I'm glad that you've had that experience. I mean, I think that's a testament to you and the people you surround yourself with. You know, if, you know, and I think you can tell when, usually you can tell when a, when a singer or performer is going to be kind off stage. Typically you can, I think. But do you ever remember a time that a director, a colleague, a teacher, a family member made you feel like that you didn't belong and did it by chance leave any lasting effect or trauma within you that affects yes. you today? Yes. Hashtag therapy twice well, a week. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I, I, it's funny. You can always tell the people that are in therapy when they get asked questions like that. They're like, yep. Talked about a Tuesday. Here's the deal. <laughs> I was, I was a younger and I had gotten an apprenticeship at the New Jersey Shakespeare Festival. And grant you, I was not in my most professional places of my life. And I think I went there more for relationship reasons and reasons that were not authentic to being there. The point is, I ended up being kicked out because I, I missed a class or something. And I, whatever. But the head of it basically talked to somebody very close to me and said, you know, don't spend time with this person. They're a loser. They're never going to amount to anything. It wasn't directly to my face, but I was told about it after the fact, after I was kicked out. And, you know, I think in some weird way, I have been proving that wrong to myself ever since and there's been others but that is a huge one for me because I thought they were right and I and I didn't want that to be who I was and you know that the offset of that is being a an overachiever or or, or, yeah. or somebody who tries really hard to never be that but that was a real traumatic sort of thing to hear about yourself and you feel like yeah. you're still trying to heal it today I think so it's getting yeah, better so but, you know. Well, I think that, that that is like a very good lead in to what you're talking about, about imposter syndrome. So you've talked a lot, you know, and, and with other interviews and, and in your life kind of about trauma in general, but also your kind of battle with imposter syndrome. Then, and you even wrote a song about it called failing falling every day failing every day is is, 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 is just even better appropriate. <laughs> okay i was about to say i feel like I mean, you might want to change day. the song title and i just maybe um you can credit laura it's not to feed into your imposter <laughs> syndrome but i'm like really good at this no i'm just kidding um but did you know about imposter syndrome before you were like plagued by it yourself and and how do you handle it today 
I mean, you're starting to have a lot of success. And, you know, for me, knowing you, it's been a long time coming. And I can't believe it's through this TikTok. And I, I just love it for you. Yeah. How long? Neither one of us knows. But it's been a long time coming. <laughs> <laughs> when do we meet? Where do we meet? Where do we meet? Yeah. Um, I appreciate that. So I think I was unabashedly confident when I first started writing, which is odd. But I did. I was fearless. I was 30 and... I was having all of this attention and, and, and things were happening and, and, you know, started to win awards and started to do more things and get more recognition. And I went through a really, really traumatically toxic moment during all of that with a relationship. And the best way I can describe it is once I was strong enough to sort of close the door on that and, and, and not be so hyper-focused on all of that chaos because I was doing all the other things and my career was taking up at the same time and I was really trying to manage these two dichotomies of reality in a sense and once I was able to close the door on all of that toxicity things started to change I met the producers for Indigo Broadway producers for Indigo person who was going to become my husband just you name it it started to happen and there's a disassociation that happens when you start to get all the things that you work for and you start to feel like, well, why is this happening? And it's not really real. And people are just being nice. I mean, the more you achieve, the more you hold yourself up to certain standards and you start moving the goalpost. For me personally, I'm just speaking for me. And I think what started to happen was I didn't understand why everything was working out. I didn't understand why all of the things I was doing, and this, I don't, I don't say this with any conceit, or pretense. I really mean it. When you look factually at what I was happening to me, I didn't understand why all of this, why, why, why did, because you would tell the stories about people you would meet or opportunities I was being given or, and it was all like, wait, just because you walked into a store, like it was all these moments like that, that really felt like I was disassociating and people would start to be like, well, you don't deserve any of that. This is luck. I'm, you know, people are being polite or people are being nice. And I think the more successful I started to get, the more the imposter syndrome started to form as a thing that I researched. And I started to second guess whether or not I could write songs. I started to just, you name it, whatever experiences I was given, I was like, you know. And then when social media started to happen and people, there was so much more attention. I was on a live one day talking to people, you know, and I, I go live Monday, Wednesday, Friday, usually on TikTok for about an hour, and I just talk or write or whatever. And I was showing my music to people, and they didn't, you know, and I said, I don't know if I'm even able to write a song anymore. And it sort of organically happened. I said, well, I think the best way to combat that is to write a song in front of 300 of you right now, or start to. And for the yeah. next week or two, I went live, and I started writing the song. I ended up releasing it. And it's all about imposter syndrome, but it brought me into therapy because it was crippling. I always mm -hmm. showed up. I always was successful. I always was. I always did the things well, but the fear of the failure, the fear of being made fun of, the fear of people being like you're a fraud, the fear of people, you know, realizing that you're the nothing that your psychological mind thinks you are is really scary. And you're the only one saying that to yourself. So it brought me into therapy to sort of figure out how to mitigate that. It is the story we tell ourselves. Imposter syndrome is pretty, uh, I mean, do you feel like you're in the process of overcoming or at least stopping the triggers for you? 
Like, are you, yes. are you able to identify it? And do you think that that's actively yes. happening? I do. And I mean, it's a process and it's going to be a long one. But I honestly think that I made some realizations during therapy where I had to find, like, go to certain memories where disassociation, and I say that a lot, but that's sort of what it is. You disassociate from your own reality, from your own successes, from your own, from what other people have a perspective of you as. So just to understand it's like it's happening to him. It's not happening to me. Right. It's happening to that uh, that person, that my persona. Or it's that happening that to my persona. Person, yeah, or that that person is not me. Like, that. I Completely. think that, like, is, I mean, I, this is something I find fascinating because I, I suffer from imposter syndrome, like, quite a lot. And it really, really hit its peak in law school. And it's very common for people that are high achievers high like intellectually you know you know kind of in the higher levels of that there's different kinds there's like they've got the superhero the people that work themselves to make up for how inadequate they feel or overcompensating yeah or perfectionism or an expert kind of issue where you feel like you never know enough and that was like such a big thing in law school where i was like i'm not supposed to be here like everybody else knows 10 times more than i do and then they don't really help you by you know the whole model doesn't really help that thought process because you know the first thing they always joke you've probably seen legally blonde where they're like look to your right and look to your left you know half of you aren't going to be here at the end of this and and so it's very hard when you're in a a big business like this that you know singing uh well it's what happens is you start to forget your successes right oh wow the disassociation comes from Oh, you've won this award, you've won that award, you've What's had next? this, you've had this. And then each new thing, none of that is reality. None of that has happened to you. Like I, I wrote a song recently called Ghosts, which is in my show, but the second verse sort of is that. It's, it says, uh, we seem to take for granted all the things that we've been through. It's like someone else's story, but you can't remember who. And I love that. The, and so for me, it's like I have to constantly remind myself that I did certain things, which then in theory would give you that confidence to continue. But I think what happens is you do something and then you check it off the list because normally you're crippled with anxiety from it and you do it, okay, good. But the next time something happens, you're like, well, I can't possibly. Oh my so, gosh, I, you know, weirdly, like, I have all the, I, I am one giant goosebump right now, which um, as Todd knows, is gonna be the name of my first book, but, um, it, like that is I've never heard it described that way and that's exactly how I feel like I've never been able to pinpoint like it's not that I know I don't have a law degree or that I know that I'm not an attorney it's just that like it's almost like that was somebody else that did that I have something called aphantasia which I didn't know was a thing I thought everybody had it <laughs> but it's the thing where certain people when they close their eyes they don't visual they don't have images they can't keep images in their head and it's always been for me that's why I'm so good verbally or with words and concepts you know but if I had, were to close my eyes and you were to describe the most beautiful beach scene with specific you know meditating whatever I would see nothing I see complete blackness and I think of things in concepts like I know what an umbrella looks like and I know what this is like I think the thoughts but I can't see anything and when I realized that not everybody was like that, I, with my therapist, I actually started to sort of associate that with disassociation because when things happen and I live through them, they're there. But when I go back and think about them, I don't think about them in a real way because it's all very foggy. 
So disassociation, imposter syndrome, and aphantasia, do you feel that that is when you get down to the nitty gritty that it's just at the end of the day, we don't feel that we deserve this? We don't deserve this accolade. We don't deserve this success. We don't deserve, is that part of it or is it just, is it just its own? I mean, I can only speak personally, right? I personally think that's a huge part of it. I think the feeling that you don't deserve the attention you get or the successes you get or what other people revere you for. I think that the idea that you don't deserve it is really ingrained because we live in a society that when we grow up, it is ingrained into us that we can be anything we want, that you can achieve, that you can do, that you can be successful in some way. That's what society teaches us. And it's true. The problem is when you get that, there's a fine line between society holding up your successes and with someone who knows how good they are or knows that they're the shit or knows that they're, you know. Knows their worth. likes that. But nobody likes somebody to be so self-deprecating and so insecure that it's exhausting. And there's a balance there between owning your own self and, and confidence, but in a palatable way for society to still think that you are modest and endearing. Humility. Sometimes that paradox can completely shift your own thinking because it ingrains itself you know we don't want to be the conceited jerk who just promotes themselves all the time and says how great they are we don't want to be someone who's like oh i'm so awful and because Mm -hmm. then people think you're fishing for compliments we want to sort of own our own truth but in a way that is accessible for all of society who doesn't feel that way about themselves it is a real mind shift to be honest yeah i actually that like brought back like this flood of and i'm sorry i'm like you this is what happens i start using our guests as therapists but i like had this like I'll invoice you yes that's fine um i get them all the time um but i i don't usually pay them but it'll be fine i know i um i had this kind of flood of a memory of when i was in middle school my family were, was is relatively wealthy came kind of later in life so I I didn't really grow grow up with it but I remember going to public it was a charter school a magnet school and getting there and realizing you know everybody else didn't have a lot of money because it's a charter school people coming from all over it's it's for intelligence it's not necessarily your class or how much money you make and so I made like I kind of created this persona of like, not that I was like, oh, I'm, I live in a trailer, but I just wouldn't talk about the fact that my family had money and I wouldn't invite people over. And I wouldn't, like, I wanted to keep that. I didn't want to be that different from everybody else. So it was kind of like making myself smaller to fit in, in that like very tight line you have to walk of. But you just figured it out for yourself because it's that very way of thinking that festers. And as you get older, starts to fester into when you are successful, you're you're inclined to sort of suppress it in some way because you don't want to own it. And I think there's a lot of PTSD with that yeah. sort of way of thinking from then till now. And that's wow. how imposter syndrome sort of develops. Oops. Wow. Well, that... <laughs> Okay, well, now we just solved a big mystery in my life. I'll, I'm going to fire my therapist. My Thank therapist. you, Scott. Hopefully she didn't pick up on this. You'd be surprised um, at how many people think I'm a therapist, for, like when they start to follow me. They're like, are you a therapist? And I was like, 
No, maybe I should be though. Then my wet Scott Evan Davis though, life coach. Yeah, life yeah. Coach. yeah. <laughs> well, that would be like three years of your life just like gone because, right. like you said, you dive head like head yeah. first into it, so we wouldn't I get any it. of your beautiful music. <laughs> and now a few words from our sponsors. Next page is sponsored by my restaurant, Bay Street Beer Garden. We're located in what was once an old train depot in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. Pretty cool, huh? Our bar and restaurant has beautiful high ceilings, communal tables, and German-influenced high-end bar fare, so it's as close as you can get to an authentic beer hall in the South. At our Bavarian-inspired and Southern-made restaurant, we're all about community, festivities, and uniting the old with the new. So go check out our website for updates on all the things, including live music, brunch parties, vendor markets, and all of our other upcoming events. We can't wait to see y'all. Next page is sponsored by Patrick Properties Hospitality Group. It's no secret that Charleston is one of the top wedding destinations in the world. And I'm thrilled to say Patrick Properties is the premier wedding and event company in the area. Since 1997, PPHG has unveiled five of Charleston's grandest properties and estates, faithfully restored and transformed into exquisite venues for special events. At Patrick Properties, we believe that moments matter, and our experienced team is committed to making each one extraordinary with unrivaled service and professional expertise. So if you're looking for a classy venue for your next big event, check out Patrick Properties Hospitality Group on their website or social media. What advice would you give to your younger self, kind of knowing what you know now as far as that goes or or anything? And all of your experiences, all your relationships, everything. The biggest advice, and I've been asked this question before, and it's a hard one, but I think the biggest advice that I would give my younger self, because I also don't feel regretful or shameful or I wouldn't change anything. Well, that's good. What I would say is, because everything happens the way it's supposed to, but I would say that if I could go back to my younger self, I would say to put less focus on trying to find the love that you were lacking or the family center that I didn't really have growing up in other people. Because if I had spent less energy trying to create and force these families that I could be a part of in these relationships or partners or whatever I was doing, that became central focus and everything else was extemporaneous. You know what I mean? I would say that it's gonna work out all of that will ease and you'll end up where you need to be. So for now, you should be focusing on yourself more because I ended up focusing so much on the things that I was missing and needing to create for myself that I never gave two seconds on whether or not it was the healthy thing to do. And that's what I would change. I can relate to that. <laughs> exactly. Um, I'm going to go a little bit bigger here with this next question. So what is your biggest fear when it comes to the state of our country, the United States of America? How do you see all of us moving forward in an era where it's still located past bills called Don't Say Gay? How does this affect you as a member of the LGBTQA plus community? I am a huge political junkie. I don't talk Mm -hmm. about it publicly anymore because I don't want to create that discourse just with what I'm putting out there. But in my own mind, I'm very fearful. I am horrified at the thought of having what we just came out of happen again, and this time even more emboldened. I'm scared of the audacity that seems to be normal now in politics. And I do believe that this particular country that we live in has a lot of hope and optimism, if we let it. 
I think the new generation is very exciting because I mm -hmm. think that there is a very huge awakening that I see happening yeah. and I don't know when it when it's going to actually take hold but I think that it's a brighter idea than maybe the darkness that I'm afraid of but I do think that there's an openness that wasn't there a long time ago and sometimes you know the whole don't say gay bill and everything how can that happen right now how could it be 2022 and how could that happen and it and, and the truth is is because those people are always going to be there i just am hopeful that at some point we can as a gr collective conscience somehow understand that we are so manipulated by other countries and what our politics becomes is so infused with lies on both sides that we mm -hmm. just sort of have to sift through and own ourselves a little bit. And it scares me. It scares me. It's why I never want to leave New York City, at least. Or your I apartment. Or my apartment, right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> at, least, at least I know that I support and understand sort of like the people that make the choices for me here in this city in a yeah. liberal way. I just, yeah. um, kids are incredible. And yeah. I think all of these sort of anti-bills are going to suck. But I yeah. also think that it just creates more strength on the other side. And, you know, we've talked about kind of a lot of that on the show is kind of the pendulum that happens when it's like, you know, yeah. when there's progress, then there's always going to be the people that are come back harder the other way around. And, and it's so disheartening. Well, look at Ukraine, number one, who would have thought mm -hmm. that would ever happen and we'd watch it. But more importantly, do you really think that we are that far from a Salem witch trials, the way that it happened, let's just say, if we really had that as an issue that people were bubbling over and there was disinformation and you know on both sides, do you really think that we're past doing some of those things that we, no, and like hu the human nature doesn't change. Our laws yeah. change and our enlightenment changes, but you know, we all have to sort of, it does, the pendulum does, and history always repeats itself. So I do think that I agree with you with the the new generation. Like I even Todd and I were talking about this because he judged this scholarship. It's I'm called a Young really Distinguished uh, Women's Scholarship Program. I'm actually going today to finish. They're, they're going to present some more things for us. But these kids, Scott, I mean, you're teaching kids all the time. But it was my first time seeing these kids are uh, juniors in high school and just incredible the way that they see the world. And some of them actually were able to say to me, to my face, I identify with the LGBTQA plus community. And like at, you know, 16, 17 years old, like I would have never been able to have the courage or oh, yeah. had the ability to say something like that. And plus this new generation just calls stuff out that we were ingrained. We don't talk about that. Don't bring that up. So I share your admiration for this new generation. I, mean, I work with a lot of adults. I also work very heavily in the autistic community, but I also work with kids. And it's sort of a beautiful thing, you know, when you can work with a kid who's transitioning, you can work with another kid who's like, you know, I think I'm, I'm, I'm non-binary and that's just how I feel. And mm -hmm. they, they're supported and they're loved and they're, I mean, I'm, I don't mean every kid in every part of crevice of this country yeah. is gonna go through that, but it is a really hopeful and beautiful thing to have such mature conversations with the younger people. I came out when I was 11, right? And, you know, I was before my time with how comfortable I felt in my own skin that way, because that's never been an issue for me, ever. But and you had supportive family. Um, you know, I did, but it was more just an ingrained sense of knowing. Even if I didn't have a supportive family, I did. But even if I didn't, it wouldn't have changed how I viewed my own reality, you know? But I think the kids are going to teach them and they will and they will lead yeah, the way. Yeah, and then we'll just like wait that. for the rest of them to die off. I think that's the key. Right.
You know, exactly. we just recycle. <laughs> but there'll be more because those people have families and yes, people that model after them. Yeah, them. they still have mouths and they can tell yeah. them things. But I, I do feel a lot of people that are in my, you know, that are my staff are younger and they're beyond that high school age. But there's just such an openness. It's almost like an acceptance, like that's silly to even worry or like think about kind of these antiquated things. Like yeah. it, I can, you can hear kind of like a, what? Like... What yeah. a ridiculous I just get so exhausted. I was like, this is what we were talking about. Let's talk about democracy. Let's yeah. talk about whether or not we can vote. Well, well. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Sorry about the sirens, um, guys. I can't. No, it's fine. No, it's okay. It's I feel like we're City, in New York. You know? Yeah. I know. Yeah. I'm yeah. feeling, this is, you've set the scene very well. Like, we're, you okay, dressed you. the set. It's all great. So, I guess kind of going back to Cautiously Optimistic, that was your first work. We know that that was, yeah. came from a dream. But um, what was like the message you were trying to get across with the work in its entirety? And do you think it was received the way you intended it to be? I do. I think my first album was really about love and pain and, and, and toxic sort of things that I had been going through. And I've never really been the kind of person to like write a song about love. Now, I could write a song about a woman in a purple dress under an awning with a broken heel in a rainstorm and someone offering them an umbrella. Like I could create characters and that's how my mind works. So I was able yeah. to sort of infuse what I was feeling in a disassociated way by putting them in into the mouths of characters that were not me. And I think it was received really well. I mean, I think my first album was trying too hard and I think my second album was better. And I think my music now is a little bit different, but you know, I'm happy with every, and I really love, I love my music, I do. And I really feel that people responded to it. Don't go anywhere because we'll be right back after a few words from our sponsors. Next page is sponsored by Rogers, Patrick, Westbrook and Brickman Law Firm, located in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. RPWB attorneys are experienced, respected and tenacious. The common thread of their work is that they help those who have been wronged. They often lead class action lawsuits and multi-district litigations against large corporations. So they're the ones fighting the big guy. And people tend to notice their attorneys, including my dad and future guest, are highly regarded by both peers and adversaries and were voted best law firm in 2021 in U.S. News and World Report. Their proudest moments are when they help ordinary, hardworking Americans who have been harmed through no fault of their own. So if you need attorneys with experience, innovation, and determination, give RPWB Law Firm a call or visit their website at rpwb.com. Your music, uh, Powerful Day, uh, which was written with and for uh, autistic children at PS94 on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, it won the Musical Theater International's Prestigious Courage in the Theater Award and then became the topic of a documentary called Spectrum of Hope. What inspired you to do this? And do you have a special connection to autism? Because you've mentioned it several times on the program. So I was just basically working as a teaching artist, going to different schools and doing musical programs and working for Brooklyn Children's Theater and, and just working with kids a lot. And I got a call in from the hiring company that was 10 you know, autistic students. They had been doing other shows and they really wanted to write their own show. They had a story to tell and uh, they needed a composer, but also a teaching artist. So I interviewed, got the job, but I never worked with an autistic population before. And, you know, I had my first session where I sat with my little journal in front of everybody and was asking them questions on what they wanted to write about. And uh, they wanted a show about kids that were bullied in school 
and then got superpowers and overtook the bullies. That's what they wanted to write about. And this girl raised her hand and she looked out in the window and she basically said, I just want the world to know what we're capable of. I want them to know. And I wrote down if the world only knew on, on my little paper. And I went home and I wrote the song over that weekend and I taught it to them on Monday. I had no idea that song was going to be the biggest song of my career, but it's sung all over the world. And it's done at the Gershwin Theater every year, Kelly O'Hara, Chris Jackson, you name it, people have sung it. And that was sort of my first foray into working with that community. And then we finished that show two days before we opened that show. It was in an auditorium on the Lower East Side. Ian walks this older guy and he was far away. And I was just trying to get my music and we were about to do a run through. I was very nervous because uh, Broadway World was there and there was a lot of attention to it. And I was like, oh my God, that guy looks just like Sondheim. Huh. And he got closer and sat right in the front row. And I was like, oh my God, that guy is Sondheim. And then I had to basically take that information in. I love Sondheim and realized that he was there sitting four feet away from me and I'm gonna to go to the piano and start playing my songs. Mm-hmm. No pressure. No pressure um, at all. So I played, I played If the World Only Knew and I looked over and he was crying. Aww. And I ended up talking to him after and we started writing letters. Actually, that's one of my letters from him right there. Oh um, we started writing letters back and forth, but that was a really great thing. So from there, I did the documentary and it became something, a really big passion of mine to work with kids who were feeling unheard or needed more of a voice and representation. And at the time, there was none in theater. So I started thinking about a show called Indigo for a lot of different reasons, but it's about a non-speaking girl who's autistic. And but there's also a grandmother with dementia and all these other family things that happen. And it's basically this girl who has a hard time communicating, teaches everybody else around her how to communicate. And that was the story I wanted to tell. And luckily, I, I've, I've gotten there, but it's taken a long time. But I think that first meeting with those kids, and I ended up being at that school for five years and creating this big program. And now I work with Epic Players, which is a professional neurodiverse theater here in New York. We just did a concert at Lincoln Center, and I love them dearly. And, and I'm developing Indigo, which is a dream of mine. You are so passionate about, you know, representation matters, and the young actress that is the star of Indigo happens to be autistic, correct? Sure. When we did our last reading before the pandemic, it was really important to me and the creative team to do a national casting call to find Emma. And I wouldn't do it if she wasn't autistic. There was no way I was going to have somebody play it. And, you know, we found her. She lives in Wisconsin. Her name is Madison Kopeck. She's a genius. I guess I could say this now because I, we can announce it soon, but we are finally getting our world premiere production next May. And there's a couple of heard it here first. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna go out and date to Dayton, Ohio, do it, and then I think possibly Seattle, but then coming back to New York. But there's a whole trajectory for it, and I'm very, very excited about it. To sort of, we've only done reading, so I'm excited to see because Emma, the character, she has synesthesia, which is where you see sound as color. And so she describes things in emotions and in color, but she also thinks in anagrams and jumbles words and communicates that way and it's a lot of fun and I'm very excited about people seeing it with all awesome. that technical aspects to it. I think it's, I always said, someone said to me years ago, what's your definition of success? I said, for me, it's going to be having a show on a stage that I've written. I'll move the goalpost, but for now, yeah. that is a dream of mine. So Yeah, the second you do that, then it'll be like, who was I that? And right. now what do right. I do? <laughs> There's a ghost. I don't even yeah. remember. No, that sounds amazing. Like I was New Yorker of the Week a couple of months ago for my work with Epic Players. And I just think I have 98% of the friends and people in my life are you know, autistic or 
neurodivergent in some way, and I think that I don't know. They're they're just my my, my best friends, basically. And yeah. I'm very excited to be able to or have the ability to maybe give a little bit more representation specifically to females and specifically for female autist, autistic um, oh, performers. I, say I am a female, so I'll take it. But, um... <laughs> but I'm excited. That's sort of how it organically happened. I never, you know, I never went into it, you know, but life happens to you. Yeah, and that's you, awesome. Um, and I guess I think, you know, like you clearly have a lot of different projects going on some interviews new york uh you know snark <laughs> prince of snarkness uh all of it so how do you like do you still have time to write and and how do you make that happen do you have like a team of people that that control some of your not your writing but you know your social media all that stuff like how, how is yes this? so my little is dog the cat Molly. that i no, saw it's the dog Okay. Um, I have a cat and a dog, and they're pretty helpful. No, I don't have a team. <laughs> what? They are your team. You know, they are your I team. Am, you are my team. <laughs> I have been a freelancer and basically sort of working in my own path for very long. And it takes a very specific kind of, I think, brain to make that work for yourself. You have to really schedule your days. You have to figure it out. I write out of necessity. I've never been the kind of person, even when I had all the time in the world, to sit at the piano and just be like, I feel... I've had a bad morning. I want to write about. I can't do that. I do write out of necessity. So, for instance, like I'm doing this concert and I wanted to write a new opening and write this. When I'm working on Indigo, you have to structure your writing time. But I don't get up and write every day. You know, I write when I have to, <laughs> you know, in, in a sense. And, you know, I do my social media and I teach 24 students a week. I have a full virtual studio and rehearsals for epic players and you know, social media stuff takes up a lot of time too. So I think I just have to be really structured. I don't have a team. If anybody out yeah. there wants to be my team. I was about to say, we're looking, I think he's looking for interns. I'm assuming they're not. Love an intern. Get all, <laughs> you get to be associated with the TikTok superstar. Yes. So anybody, anybody out there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Scott, how do you unwind? Is it with coffee? No, um, no, that's when you wind. Um, <laughs> coffee is not to unwind. Honestly, I'm not great, big surprise, at unwinding. I love reality television. I love sort of sitting back and doing and scrolling and, and, and just doing nothing. Like, you know, like everybody else, the day ends, we find something on Netflix that we can have on that is interesting enough to have on but that we don't have to pay attention to so we can scroll through our four platforms and on our phones and sort of just unwind and you know and, and let the day go i i like doing that i also sit and play the piano i really do love to just sit and play but that's not when the songs are written you're just no playing. no like chopin or something you know, i'm just, just casually throwing something. some chopin in there <laughs> you know <laughs> like you do no, no big deal oh my god <laughs> I, I was very aware of how pretentious that was the second it left <laughs> no, no, no it wasn't pretentious everybody does that to <laughs> unwind what are you talking about <laughs> I, I like Chopsticks. That's my favorite unwinding piano song. Um, <laughs> this has been absolutely amazing, but we do have a tradition on this show where we ask a question of the day, which we will later have to answer for ourselves. But, um, <laughs> that was the reveal music. Considering that, you know, you have your... I'll write you guys one. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> Um, the TikTok, you know, the, the Prince of Starkness with his coffee cup, we thought, and now knowing how much coffee you do actually consume on a daily basis, which is a lot, guys. If you could have coffee with one person who is still living, 
Who would that be and why? I'm going to answer this, and there's only one answer. I mean, it's not even... And anybody who knows me, anybody who knows me has already answered this in their head. They're shouting it out right now if they're listening to this. But it's Barbara Streisand. She has been the driving force since I'm, I think, 12 for me, both as an inspiration, both as a human, both as the one person I've ever been truly obsessed with learning everything about. Like, either there's nothing I don't know or heard or it would be her. It would be her. That's amazing. I think she would love me. I think if I sat with her. If I sat with her and had coffee with her and she that actually happened in my life, I think she would love me. I do. I think we just put it out into the universe. We would. I mean, (laughs) yes, I think there would be a very familial feeling. That's what I think. You know, just a quick little story about that. You might know Brian Nash. He's a pianist in New York. Very, very well. He's a good friend of mine. He played a a private recital or like concert that she did like three songs at Lincoln Center in a very private room. It was about 30 people. And um, yeah, you had to talk to tell them about this. But there was an interview portion afterwards. And the interviewer said, you know, Barbara, your your voice is incredible. You're like, you're belting, you're mixing, you're a soprano. Like anything about your technique or is this just God given? And she goes, what is a mix? Every time I probably had a voice lesson. What's a mix? What is a mix? (laughs) And so we, we, Brian and I, whenever we see each other, we go, what is a mix? (laughs) So yeah, Barbara, I think Barbara would love love you, Scott. Oh, I think so too. Let's go tell her. Let's send this to her. Everyone, let's, let's do a hashtag, hashtag Scott meet Barbara. (laughs) Yes. We're going to have a full fledged campaign to make this happen. I think that that's what (laughs) this is going to take. Or you could literally just, you know, walk outside your apartment right now and she could just appear because it seems like that's a theme in your life that true i mean if i think about her hard enough i'm sure she'll be at the bodega (laughs) (laughs) oh at the bodega gosh i love you new yorkers (laughs) we need some bodegas down here scott it's been an absolute pleasure you guys too thank you so much yeah this has really been amazing and we've enjoyed learning i've learned about aphantasia which i didn't know which i actually thought was what you referenced later on which is seeing colors with numbers because oh synesthesia yeah yeah so i have i have synesthesia when it comes to numbers it's very like bizarre you see numbers as color yes so i was you think it would help with math it does not if anything i'm just like no that's yellow what are we talking about Um, it's funny i also have dyscalculia i know we have to go but dyscalculia is where you have dyslexia but with numbers so i have that as well but seeing colors as numbers or numbers as colors is fascinating. But no, aphantasia, you see nothing is born. What born. was the dis, the, what was it? what did you just call it? Discalcula. Okay, so if so someone is- says take 327 plus 16 and without paper, and I'm like going to try to, the numbers literally, they, they will not stay in place and I forget them, I have to look. It must be what, it, it, you know, when people have dyslexia with, with letters. I don't have it with letters, yeah. I'm great with letters, but with yeah. numbers, that's why I failed math. I think I have this. You don't know me very well, but I am a huge hypochondriac. So I will make sure I don't have this before the end of the day. But it could explain a lot of things. I wish I could see your Google search after this was over. Oh, (laughs) it's, it's, yeah. I have. (laughs) I I really need to just clear my history every single day. And it's not for anything like, like, it's nothing nasty. It's just like embarrassing. Just forward your history to your therapist. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. These are the things we need to talk about. (laughs) Everything in my Google search. Yeah, just let's talk about my Google search, okay? (laughs) This is what's going to happen. We had an awesome time. Yeah, exactly. It was great. Yeah, this was so much fun, and um, we... Before we know. go, well, before we go, sorry, we keep... keep uh, Scott, how can people find you? Oh, 
it's skydiving davis as one word no spaces no capitals on everything Talk. my website is skydivendavis.com you know all right yeah we'll have everything um in our show notes for everybody everybody go check it out if you haven't subscribed or followed him on instagram or tiktok you know he's thank you he's really hurting for followers right now so if you could just um, I need get the on there and help him <laughs> help him out <laughs> It's bad. It's really bad. No, he's hysterical. We've had an awesome time. We really can't like thank you enough. So Until thanks. next time. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks, Scott. All right. Bye. Wow. Yeah. I mean, uh, whoa. He's just like, you know what I love the most about Scott is that he's not just funny. He's like so real. Like the the to you know that he's just open and that I I don't know I related to him on so many levels I just like you did you were having some epiphanies straight up that. like solved some life problems I think during that interview so I I owe him a I need to send him some flowers or, or something because it was an eye opening discussion and I think that a lot of people are going to be able to relate to it because because right. like we keep saying like the, nobody is impervious to dealing with with issues even if they are like the biggest composer writer actor whatever TikTok star you know (laughs) um we talked about dissociation imposter syndrome aphantasia which i had no idea you didn't even know about that either right mm -mm, do you remember the last one he said it was a cine like synesthesia or something like that seeing letters and and numbers and stuff as colors and things like that which is what indigo is basically about i really like the i mean like just even the, the fact that he works with autistic kids like i mean i have affected by that in a lot of ways as far as family members and friends and I think people that are involved with it know a lot about it. But if you don't, then you're, you're kind of separated from it. So I love that he's bringing it to like a show. Well, that and, story and he told about the, the young girl who said, I just want people, you know, if they only knew what we were capable of, that young autistic girl that said that. Mm-hmm. And then he wrote the song, If the World Only Knew. He's just so intelligent. And and he has a lot to, I, I think I love the fact that he can, he helps so many people to get that message out, like that they are worthy people too. right he was one of those people in new york that i met um, we still don't know where we met or how we met don't know how but um but uh we when when i did meet him i remembered that i remembered scott you know i don't remember the moment i met him but i remembered scott and we've kept in touch over the years and he's just been such a, a constant source of inspiration and then when i noticed that his social media following was just exploding i know he has talked about his own traumas and his own you know imposter syndrome so we both thought he would be a great guest he surely proved to be just that and well, you that. know like imposter syndrome is very um personal that's what's so kind of not sad but what's hard about it is that you knew you've known for so long that he's he's destined for greatness because he has that personality and he's, he's he and just he's, has a light around him like an aura and i think that his snark snarkness works because people can tell that he's not a giant asshole do you know what yeah, i mean i think yeah. that that's why it it plays so well and that it resonates with so many people but yeah i i'm so glad that he uh, he came on the program thank you for hooking that up Oh, you know, because you, you, you made the dream happen. Well, so. uh, you can you can find him on all of our platforms, you know, nextpagepodcast.com. Also, you can check it out on our Instagram. We're going to have, you know, all of our guests on there and uh, and go to scottevandavis.com. And that's his, his TikTok and his uh, social media. I mean, I'm just uh, I'm so thrilled that we are doing this together. And I think we are 
actually, I hope for you, every, all of you listeners out there, I speak for Laura and myself when we say we hope that this, some of this resonates with you and well, maybe you know someone that you could say, you know, I heard, heard this conversation, you might want to take a, take a listen to this because I think that's why we're doing what we're doing, right, Laura? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that the, this is all about kind of making people feel less alone with what they're going through, especially with other people that you see as kind of on this this ivory tower sometimes of, you know, that they're live these perfect lives, but they've also gone through any number of things. And then it's always really awesome to see like how they overcome it. And like how, like, I just think that this podcast, what I hope it to be is like the real Cinderella story for people like that. It's not the, oh, you know, the, the prince coming to save you, but that it is kind of a, a hopeful that, that you can come back from, from anything and thing. 100%. And he, I, there's I, always, just, there's always going to be a rainy day, but the sun will come out, you know? It's, 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 Some will come out. I should not ever sing on here ever. I'm like, that's so, <laughs> cut that out. <laughs> we, that, we had all these amazing. That, that made me so happy on so many levels to hear you say. <laughs> Good morning, that everybody. Was like not even on key. <laughs> that's all right. Oh, God. Uh, well, that's you know, that's right. why we have the, <laughs> I reserve that for you and you just don't do it enough. So you're going to force me to be singing. <laughs> All right, well, Laura. Uh, well, we do need to ask each other a question of the day. Right. That is yes. right. So who uh, would you have coffee with living to this day? I guess we can't go to history. Right. I've been really, really trying to think about this since since we asked Scott, and I am torn because there's so many people. I, I just have so many questions. But well, we but, have this um, podcast. Exactly. <laughs> I think I would love to sit down with honestly and I think you're gonna you're gonna maybe think this is weird but I know this might sound cliche but I want to talk to Oprah but I don't want to talk to Oprah oh, stop it uh, listen I don't want to talk it. to Oprah you gonna say Oprah too did you literally steal my answer go yeah, ahead no. no go ahead no. go ahead no it's fine I no, I'll talk just to gotta her, think of another one but I don't want to talk to her about her being Oprah like the brand I want to talk to Oprah about when the cameras are off that yes. because I feel that there is, you know, she's she's so on all the time. And I just wonder what she's like, you know, with Gail or with Stedman when the cameras aren't there, when she can just have a glass yes. of wine and chill. That's what that's the Oprah that I want to get to know because everything else is and yes, she is amazing and she's very polished and professional and all of those kinds of things. Um, but I just think she would be fascinating because she's interviewed so many presidents and so many, you know, psychopaths and so many amazing <laughs> Yeah, you know what oh, I mean? Could be the like, same well, but whatever yeah I, and I wonder if she I mean she still does interviews but I wonder if she misses her show I wonder if she misses that whole Chicago uh, life well in some sort of historical monumental way we have come up with the same answer instead of me having two answers and all of that but I a thousand percent agree like I would just love to talk to her not about like you know world peace or anything but like literally like what her life is like and how she balances things, how she processes, like kind of how we talked to uh, Omar Torres, the therapist, about when he leaves a therapy session, like how long does it take for him to like decompress, decompress. And it's like, I feel like she is on all the time. So like what, how does she do that? I know because I, I stalked her a little bit online that she has a, a full prayer room that she goes into every single morning before she starts her day. And she sits there and in, in prayer at sunrise every single morning and she journals. And I think that her keeping herself grounded and she talks about everyone around her, she calls it the noise. 
you know, the noise, uh, silencing the noise. I wonder what she's like at like a family barbecue. But see, like, I yeah, mean, I would rather know, like, I want to see her drunk, you know, like, I don't want, I want to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I want to give her some shots, you know, because it's like, we, yeah, of course she goes into her prayer room every morning at sunrise. Like, ugh, or, you know, like she's Oprah. She's like the best, but. I want to know, you know, what did she ever not feel like the best? Does she ever not want to go to her prayer room in the morning? You know, there's just, exactly. you know, that's the kind of like the human level that I want. I've I, also always dreamed of going to her show. And then, of course, it ended. So, uh, you know, that's uh, I'll take coffee. You know, I, then can't I can't go to her show. I'll take the same person. That is so cool. cool. I know. I literally have it. It's not even like I'm lying. I had it written I had down it right here, too. We can confirm right that there. this was not. This is, there it is. We can confirm this was not some sort of crazy whatever. Right. We, we did it. Everybody go check out Oprah. Go check out Scott Evan Davis. And go check uh, out our pages. Yeah, next Go page follow podcast. us. Yeah, help. Help us. We need to get to help at least 500,000 followers by, exactly. <laughs> by the time this airs so that we feel on the same level as Scott. Exactly. But this is super right. fun. I love seeing you all the time. So, and until next time. Bye, y'all. Bye.